Chapter 6 John Wesley, The Ministry A hundred years ago, England received such deep influence from John Wesley that I wouldn't feel that I did him justice if I didn't provide a few examples of his writings. Before we turn away from the father of Methodism, let us try to get some clear idea of his style of thought and his way of expressing himself. Let's see how his mind worked. The man who could leave his mark so indelibly on his fellow countrymen as John Wesley did could have been no ordinary man. The man who could keep his hold on congregations until he was between eighty and ninety years old, and produce effects second only to those produced by Whitefield, must evidently have possessed special gifts. Several extracts from his sermons and other writings will probably be found to be interesting and instructive by most Christian readers and listeners. The writings for forming a judgment in this matter are happily abundant and easily accessible. A volume of fifty-seven sermons lies before me at this moment, prepared for publication by Wesley's own hands and first published in 1771. It is a volume that deserves far more attention than it generally receives in the present day. The doctrine of some of the sermons, I must honestly confess, is sometimes very flawed. Nevertheless, the volume contains many noble passages, and there are many pages in it that are perfect models of good style for their clearness, conciseness, directness, vigor, and pure Saxon phraseology. Wesley's preface to his volume of sermons is of itself very remarkable. I will begin by giving a few extracts from it. He says, I intend plain truth for plain people. Therefore, I purposely abstain from all intricate and philosophical speculations, from all complex and intricate reasonings, and, as far as possible, from even the show of learning, unless in sometimes citing the original scriptures. I try to avoid all words that are not easy to be understood, and that are not used in common life. I particularly try to avoid those technical terms that so frequently occur in scholarly books, that manner of speaking that people who read much might be intimately acquainted with, but that is an unknown tongue to common people. Yet I am not assured that I do not sometimes slide into them without realizing it. It is so extremely natural to imagine that a word that is familiar to us is familiar to everyone else. No, my intent is, in some sense, to forget all that I have ever read in my life. I intend to speak in general as if I had never read one author, ancient or modern, except for the inspired. I am convinced that, on the one hand, this might be a means of enabling me to more clearly express the sentiments of my heart, while I simply follow the string of my own thoughts without entangling myself with that of other men, and that, on the other hand, I will come with fewer weights upon my mind, with fewer of my own thoughts and preconceptions either to search for myself or to deliver to others the naked truth of the gospel. To honest, reasonable people, I am not afraid to lay open what have been the innermost thoughts of my heart. I have considered that I am a creature of a day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf until a few moments from now when I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. 
God Himself has condescended to teach the way. It was for this very purpose that the Lord came from heaven. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book! At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. There is knowledge enough for me here. Let me be a man of one book. Here then I am free from the busy ways of men. I sit down alone, only God is here. In His presence I open and read His book, and I do so for this purpose, to find the way to heaven. Is there a doubt concerning the meaning of what I read? Does anything appear vague and difficult? I lift up my heart to the Father of lights. Lord, it is your word that, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. For you give generously and without reproach. James 1 5. You have said that if anyone is willing to do your will, he will know what it is. I am willing to do your will. Let me know your will. I then search after and consider parallel passages of Scripture, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2.13. I meditate on God's Word with all the earnestness and attention of which my mind is capable. If any doubt still remains, I consult those who are experienced in the ways of God, and then I read the writings of those who, being dead, still speak. Hebrews 11.4. And what I learn, that I teach. But some may say that I have mistaken the way myself although I have attempted to teach it to others. It is probable that many will think this, and it is very possible that I have. But I hope that, in whatever I am mistaken, my mind is open to conviction. I sincerely desire to be better informed. I say to God and man, What I do not know, teach me. Are you convinced that you see more clearly than me? It's not unlikely that you do. Then treat me as you would desire to be treated yourself if the circumstances were reversed. Point out a better way than I have yet known. Show me it is so by plain proof of Scripture. If I linger in the path I have been accustomed to walk, and therefore I am unwilling to leave it, labor with me a little. Take me by the hand and lead me as I am able to bear. Do not be discouraged if I ask you not to beat me down in order to quicken my pace if I can only go feebly and slowly at best, for then I would not be able to go at all. I request further that you do not call me harsh names in order to bring me into the right way. Even if I were very much in the wrong, I doubt this would set me right. Rather, it would make me run farther from you, and so cause me to get more and more out of the way. No, maybe if you are angry, I will be angry too. Then there will not be much hope of me finding the truth. If anger arises, its smoke will so dim the eyes of my soul that I will not be able to see anything clearly. For God's sake, if it is possible to avoid it, let us not provoke one another to wrath. Let us not kindle in each other this fire of hell, much less blow it up into a flame. If we could discern truth by that dreadful light, would it not be loss rather than gain? For love, even with many wrong opinions, is much to be preferred before truth itself without love. We can die without the knowledge of many truths, and yet be carried into Abraham's bosom. But if we die without love, what good will knowledge do? 
it will do as much as it will do for the devil and his angels. The next example of John Wesley's mind will be an excerpt from a sermon preached by him at St. Mary's Oxford University on June 18, 1738, from the words, By grace you are saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8. It concludes with the following passages. At this time we will speak more particularly that, By grace you are saved through faith, because maintaining this doctrine was never more seasonable than it is at this day. Nothing but this can effectively prevent the increase of the Roman Catholic delusion among us. It is endless to attack all the errors of that church one at a time, but salvation by faith strikes at the root, and all the errors fall at once when this is established. It was this doctrine, which we justly call the strong rock and foundation of the Christian religion, that first drove Roman Catholicism out of these kingdoms, and it is this alone that can keep it out. Nothing but this can inhibit that immorality that has spread over the land as a flood. Can you empty the ocean, drop by drop? If so, then you can reform us by keeping us from specific sins. However, let the righteousness that is of God by faith be brought in, and its proud waves will be stopped. Nothing but this can stop the mouths of those who glory in their shame and openly deny the Lord who bought them. Second Peter 2, 1. They can talk as wonderfully of the law as he who has it written by God in his heart. To hear them speak on this topic might incline one to think they were not far from the kingdom of God. However, take them out of the law and into the gospel. Begin with the righteousness of faith, with Christ the end of the law to everyone who believes. Romans 10:4. And those who now appear almost, if not completely, Christians, stand confessed as the sons of perdition, as far from life and salvation, God be merciful unto them, as the depth of hell is from the height of heaven. For this reason, the adversary so fiercely rages whenever salvation by faith is declared to the world. For this reason, he stirred up earth and hell to destroy those who preached it. For this same reason, knowing that faith alone could overturn the foundation of his kingdom, he called forth all his forces and employed all his skills of lies and malice to frighten that champion of the Lord Almighty, Martin Luther, from reviving it. Nor can we wonder at that, for as that man of God observes, how would it enrage a proud, strong man, armed, to be stopped and defeated by a little child coming against him with a stick in his hand, especially when he knew that the little child would surely overthrow him and tread him underfoot. Even so, Lord Jesus, in this way has your strength been made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Go forth then, you little child who believes in him, and his right hand will teach the divine things. Although you are helpless and as weak as an infant, the strong man will not be able to stand before you. You will prevail over him, defeat him, overthrow him, and trample him under your feet. You will march on with the great captain of your salvation, Hebrews 2.10, conquering and to conquer, until all your enemies are destroyed and death is swallowed up in victory. The next example that I will give of John Wesley's preaching is the conclusion of his sermon on justification by faith. It ends with the following powerful paragraphs.
The text is Romans 4, 5. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. You ungodly one, who hears or reads these words, you vile, helpless, miserable sinner, I warn you before God, the judge of all, to go straight unto Jesus with all your ungodliness. Be careful that you do not destroy your own soul by pleading your own righteousness. Go as utterly ungodly, guilty, lost, destroyed, deserving of, and dropping into hell, and thus you will find favor in his sight, and know that he justifies the ungodly. As such you will be brought unto the blood of sprinkling as an undone, helpless, condemned sinner. Thus look unto Jesus. There is the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. Plead no works, no righteousness of your own. Plead no humility, contrition, or sincerity. That would be, in very deed, to deny the Lord who bought you. No, plead only the blood of the covenant, the ransom paid for your proud, stubborn, sinful soul. Who are you who now sees and feels both your inward and outward ungodliness? Scripture, you are the man. 2 Samuel 12, 7. I want to win you for my Lord. I challenge you to become a child of God by faith. The Lord has need of you. You who feel you are only worthy of hell are able to advance His glory, the glory of free grace, justifying the ungodly and him who works not. Romans 4, 5. Oh, come quickly! Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you, even you, will be reconciled to God. The last example of John Wesley's preaching that I will bring before the listener is a part of a sermon preached by him at St. Mary's, Oxford University, in 1744. The text is Acts 4:31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. The title of the sermon is Scriptural Christianity. After asking the question, Where does scriptural Christianity exist? he proceeds to address his hearers in the following manner. We must remember that he was speaking to students, heads of houses, professors, fellows, tutors, and other residents at the University of Oxford. I ask you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that if you consider me a madman or a fool, yet as a fool bear with me. It is utterly necessary that someone should use great plainness of speech toward you. It is more especially necessary at this time, for who knows but it may be the last. Who knows how soon the righteous judge may say, as in Ezekiel 14, I will hear no more prayers for this people. Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in this land, they would only deliver their own souls. And who will use this plainness if I do not? Therefore I, even I, will speak. And I implore you, by the living God, that you do not harden your hearts against receiving a blessing at my hands. Brethren, I think better things of you, even though I speak in this manner. Let me ask you then, in tender love, and in the spirit of meekness, is this city of Oxford a Christian city? Is Christianity, scriptural Christianity, found here? 
Are we, as a community of people, so filled with the Holy Spirit as to enjoy in our hearts and show forth in our lives the genuine fruit of the Spirit? Are all the magistrates, all heads and governors of colleges and halls, and their respective societies, not to speak of the inhabitants of the town, of one heart and one soul? Is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts? Are our spirits and beliefs the same that were in Him? Are our lives agreeable to His? Are we holy, as He who has called us is holy in every aspect of our lives? In the fear of God, and in the presence of the great God before whom both you and I will soon appear, I beg you who are in authority over us, whom I reverence for your office's sake, not to compare yourselves to those who merely pretend to know and follow God. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you living likenesses of Him whom you are appointed to represent among men? Scripture, I have said, You are gods, you magistrates and rulers. Psalm 82, 6. You are by office so nearly allied to the God of heaven. You are to present and proclaim to us the Lord our Governor in your positions and duties. Are all the thoughts of your hearts, all your behaviors and desires, suitable to your high calling? Are all your words like unto those that come out of the mouth of God? Is there dignity and love in all your actions, a greatness that words cannot express, that can flow only from a heart full of God, yet is consistent with the character of man that is a worm, and the son of man that is a worm. Job 25, 6. You venerable men, who are more particularly called to form the tender minds of youth, to dispel from them the clouds of ignorance and error, and to train them up to be heirs unto salvation, are you filled with the Holy Spirit, and with that fruit of the Spirit, that your important office so indispensably requires? Does your heart fully belong to God, and are you full of love and zeal to set up His kingdom on earth? Do you continually remind those under your care that the one rational end of all our studies is to know, love, and serve the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent? Do you communicate to them day by day that only love never fails? and that without love all learning is only ornate ignorance, pompous foolishness, and weariness of spirit? Does all that you teach have an actual tendency to the love of God, and of all mankind for His sake? Are you pursuing this goal in whatever you teach, affecting the kind, manner, and measure of their studies, desiring and laboring that wherever the lot of these young soldiers of Christ is cast, they may be burning and shining lights, adorning the gospel of Christ in all things. Do you put forth all your strength in the vast work you have undertaken? Do you labor in this with all your might, exerting every skill of your souls, using every talent that God has lent you, and that to the uttermost of your power? Let it not be said that I speak here as if everyone under your care were intended to be clergymen. Not so. I only speak as if they were all intended to be Christians. But what example is set for them by us who enjoy the goodness of our forefathers, by fellows, students, and scholars, and more especially those who are of some rank and prominence? Do you, brethren, abound in the fruit of the Spirit, 
in lowliness of mind, in self-denial and mortification, in tenderness and composure of spirit, in patience, meekness, solemnity, discipline, moderation, and in unwearied, restless efforts to do good unto all people, to relieve their outward needs, and to bring their souls to the true knowledge and love of God? Is this the general character of fellows of colleges? I fear it is not. Rather, have not pride and haughtiness of spirit, impatience and irritability, sloth and laziness, gluttony and sensuality, and even a proverbial uselessness, been complained about to us, perhaps not always by our enemies, and not completely without good reason? Oh, that God would roll away this reproach from us, so that the very memory of it might perish forever. Many of us are men directly consecrated to God, called to minister in holy things. Are we, then, examples to all others, in word, in life, in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in purity? Is there written on our foreheads and on our hearts, Holiness to the Lord? Exodus 28.35 From what motive did we enter upon the office? Was it indeed with a single eye to serve God, trusting that we were inwardly moved by the Holy Spirit to take upon us this duty for the promotion of His glory and the edifying of His people? Have we clearly determined, by God's grace, to give ourselves completely to this work? Do we forsake and set aside, as much as we are able, all worldly cares and studies? Do we apply ourselves entirely to this one thing? and focus all our cares and studies on this. Are we ready to teach? Are we taught of God so that we are able to teach others also? Do we know God? Do we know Jesus Christ? Has God revealed His Son in us? Has He made us capable ministers of the new covenant? Where, then, are the seals of our apostleship? 1 Corinthians 9, 2 who that were dead in trespasses and sins have been made alive by our word? Do we have a burning zeal to save souls from death, so that for their sakes we often forget even to eat our bread? Do we speak plainly, commending ourselves to everyone's conscience by manifestation of the truth? Are we dead to the world and the things of the world, laying up all our treasure in heaven? Do we lord it over God's heritage? or are we the least the servants of all? When we bear the reproach of Christ, does it weigh heavily upon us, or do we rejoice therein? When we are smitten on the one cheek, do we resent it? Are we impatient about insults and wrongs done to us, or do we turn the other cheek also, not resisting evil, but overcoming evil with good? Do we have a bitter zeal, that incites us to strive sharply and passionately with those who are not walking on the narrow way? Or is our zeal the flame of love, guiding all our words with sweetness, lowliness, and meekness of wisdom? Once more, what will we say concerning the youth of this place? Have you either the form or the power of Christian godliness? Are you humble, teachable, and willing to accept advice? Or are you stubborn? self-willed, headstrong, and proud? Are you obedient to your superiors as to parents, or do you despise those to whom you owe the tenderest reverence? 
Are you diligent in all that you do, pursuing your studies with all your strength? Do you redeem the time, crowding as much work into every day as it can contain? Or are you not aware that you waste away day after day, either in reading what has no tendency to Christianity, or in gambling, or in you know not what? Are you better managers of your money than of your time? Do you, out of principle, take care to owe no one anything? Romans 13, 8. Do you live as seeing him who is invisible? Hebrews 11, 27. Do you know how to possess your bodies in holiness and honor? 1 Thessalonians 4, 4. Are not drunkenness and impurity found among you? Yes, are there not many of you who glory in their shame? Philippians 3.19 Do not many of you take the name of God in vain, perhaps habitually, without either remorse or fear? Yes, are there not many among you who are guilty of lying and deceit? I fear this might be a swiftly increasing multitude. Do not be surprised, brethren. Before God and this congregation, I admit that I have also been of this number, solemnly promising to observe all those customs that I then knew nothing of, and those statutes that I did not so much as read over, either then or for some years after. What is lying if this is not? But if it is, oh, what a weight of sin lies upon us! Yes, sin of no common dye! Does not the Most High observe it? Might not one of the consequences of this be that so many of you are a generation of triflers? You trifle with God, with one another, and with your own souls. How few of you, from one week to another, spend a single hour in private prayer! How few of you have any thought of God in the general course of your conduct! Who of you is in any degree acquainted with the work of His Spirit and His supernatural work in the souls of men? Can you hear, unless every once in a while in a church, any talk of the Holy Spirit? Would you not think that if someone began such a conversation that it was either hypocrisy or enthusiasm? In the name of the Lord God Almighty, I ask if you have saving religion. Some of you cannot and will not even tolerate people talking about Christianity. Indeed, what probability, or what possibility, speaking after the manner of men, is there that Christianity, scriptural Christianity, would be again the religion of this place, and that all classes of men among us should speak and live as men filled with the Holy Spirit? By whom should this Christianity be restored? By those of you who are in authority? Are you convinced then that this is scriptural Christianity? Do you desire for it to be restored? Do you consider your fortune, liberty, and life not dear unto yourselves, so that you can be instrumental in restoring it? Suppose you have the desire, but who has any power suitable to bring about that change? Some of you might have made a few vain attempts, but with little success. Will Christianity, then, be restored by young, unknown, inconsequential men? I don't know whether you yourselves would allow it. Some of you would cry out, Young man, in so doing you reproach us. But there is no danger of your being tested, 
so iniquity has covered us like a flood. What then will God send? Will He send the famine, the pestilence, God's last messengers to a guilty land, or the sword? Will He send Roman Catholic armies to invade us and reform us to our first love? No, but rather let us fall into your hand, O Lord, and do not let us fall into the hand of man. First Chronicles 21.13 Lord, save us, or we perish. Take us out of the mire, so that we will not sink. O oh, help us against these enemies, for vain is the help of man. Unto you all things are possible. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are appointed to die, and preserve us in the manner that seems good to you, not as we will, but as you will. The listener will probably agree with me that this is a remarkable sermon, and a type that is not frequently heard in university pulpits. We don't know much about what was thought of it in 1744 by the vice-chancellor, the heads of houses, and the fellows and tutors of the colleges. In his journal, Wesley only remarks, I preached this day for the last time, I suppose, at St. Mary's. So be it. I am now clear of the blood of these men. I have fully delivered my own soul. The rector came to me afterward, and told me that the vice-chancellor had sent him for my notes. I sent them without delay, not without admiring the wise providence of God. Perhaps few men of note would have given a sermon of mine the reading if I had put it in their hands. But by this reason it came to be read, probably more than once, by every man of eminence in the university. Many people will probably agree with me that if Oxford had heard more of such plain preaching during the last 120 years, it would have been good for the Church of England. Moving on from Wesley's preaching, I will now give an example of his mind of a very different kind. I will give the twelve rules that he established for the guidance of his helpers in evangelistic work in the Methodist Communion. They serve to illustrate, I think, in a very impressive manner, the great wisdom and good sense of the man and they are also good examples of his concise, direct style of composition. He says to his helpers, 1. Be diligent. Never be unemployed for a moment. Never be frivolously employed. Never waste away time. Never spend any more time at any place than is strictly necessary. 2. Be serious. Let your motto be holiness to the Lord. Avoid all lightness, jesting, and foolish talking. 3. Converse sparingly and cautiously with women, particularly with young women in private. 4. Take no step toward marriage without first acquainting me with your intentions. 5. Believe evil of no one. Unless you see it done, be careful how you accept it. Put the best construction on everything. The judge is always supposed to be on the prisoner's side. 6. Speak evil of no one, or else your words especially would eat as a cancer does. Keep your thoughts within your own heart until you come to the person concerned. 7. Tell everyone what you think is wrong in him, and do so plainly and as soon as possible, or else it will fester in your heart. Make all haste to cast the fire out of your heart. 8. Do not aspire to be, or pretend to be, a nobleman. 
You have no more to do with this character than with that of a dancing instructor. A preacher of the gospel is the servant of all. 9. Be ashamed of nothing but sin, not of fetching wood, if time permits, or of drawing water, not of cleaning your own shoes or your neighbor's. 10. Be punctual. Do everything exactly at the time. In general, do not adjust our rules, but keep them, not for wrath, but for conscience' sake. 11. You have nothing to do but save souls. Therefore, spend and be spent in this work. Go always not to those who need you, but to those who need you most. And 12. In all things, do not act according to your own will, but as a son in the gospel. As such, it is your part to use your time in the manner that we direct, partly in preaching and visiting the flock from house to house, and partly in reading, meditation, and prayer. Above all, if you labor with us in the Lord's vineyard, it is necessary that you should do that part of the work that we advise, at those times and places that we judge to be most for His glory. It is needless to comment on these rules. They speak for themselves. Though originally drawn up with a special view to the needs of the Methodist helpers, they contain wisdom for all groups of Christians. Happy would it be for all the churches of Christ if all the ministers of the gospel would carry out the spirit of these rules and remember their wise suggestions far more than they do. Let us next take an illustration of the way in which John Wesley used to advise his preachers individually. To one who is in danger of becoming a noisy, obnoxious preacher, he writes, At the peril of your soul, scream no more. God now warns you by me, whom he has set over you. Speak as earnestly as you can, but do not scream. Speak with all your heart, but with a moderate voice. It was said of our Lord, He shall not cry, Isaiah 42, 2, Matthew 12, 19. This literally means, He shall not scream. In this be a follower of me, as I am of Christ. I often speak loud, and often strongly, but I never scream. I never strain myself. I dare not. I know it would be a sin against God and my own soul. To one who neglected the duty of private reading and regular study, he wrote as follows. Your talent in preaching does not increase. It is just the same as it was seven years ago. It is lively, but not deep. There is little variety. There is no compass of thought. Only reading can supply this, along with daily meditation and daily prayer. You wrong yourself greatly by omitting this. You can never be a deep preacher without it, nor even a thorough Christian. Oh, begin! Set aside some part of every day for private devotion. You may acquire the taste that you do not now have. What seems tedious at first will afterward be pleasant. Whether you like it or not, read and pray daily. It is for your life. There is no other way, else you will be shallow all your days and a superficial preacher. Do justice to your own soul. Give it time and means to grow. Do not starve yourself any longer. The last example of John Wesley's mind that I will give is an extract from a letter that he wrote to the Bishop of Lincoln, by way of public protest, 
on account of the disgraceful persecution that some intolerant magistrates carried on against the Lincolnshire Methodists. It's an interesting letter, not only because of the holy boldness of its style, but also due to the age of the writer. Wesley wrote, My Lord, I am a dying man, having already one foot in the grave. Humanly speaking, I cannot long creep upon the earth, being now nearer ninety than eighty years of age. But I cannot die in peace before I have discharged this office of Christian love to your Lordship. I write without ceremony, as neither hoping nor fearing anything from your Lordship or from any man living. And I ask, in the name and in the presence of him, to whom both you and I are shortly to give an account, why do you trouble those who are quiet in the land, those who fear God and work righteousness? Does your Lordship know what the Methodists are, that many thousands of them are zealous members of the Church of England, and are strongly attached not only to His Majesty, but to His present ministry? Why should your Lordship, setting religion out of the question, throw away such a body of respectable friends? Is it for their religious sentiments? Alas, my Lord, is this a time to persecute any man for conscience's sake? I beseech you, my Lord, do as you want to be done to you. You are a man of sense, you are a man of learning. I truly believe, what is of infinitely more value, that you are a man of piety. Then think, and let think. I pray God to bless you with the choicest of his blessings. With this letter, I conclude my illustrations of John Wesley's mind and its working. It would be easy to add to these examples I have given from the large supply of materials that are still within reach of all who choose to look for them. However, there is such a thing as overloading a subject and injuring it by quoting too much. I believe I have said enough to supply my readers and listeners with the means of forming a judgment of John Wesley's mental quality. Has anyone regarded the father of Methodism as a mere fanatic, as a man of moderate abilities and superficial education, as a successful popular preacher and a leader of an ignorant sect, but nothing more? I ask you to carefully examine the examples I have given of Wesley's mind and to reconsider your opinion. Whether people like Methodist doctrine or not, I think you must honestly acknowledge that Wesley was a scholar and a sensible man. The world, which always sneers at true Christianity, might please itself by saying that the men who shook England a hundred years ago were weak-minded, hot-headed enthusiasts, and unlearned and ignorant men. The Jews said the same of the apostles in the early days. But the world cannot get over facts. The founder of Methodism was a man of no lowly reputation in Oxford, and his writings show him to have been a well-read, logical-minded, intelligent man. Let the children of this world deny this if they can. Finally, has anyone disliked Wesley because of his Armenian opinions? Is anyone in the habit of turning away from his name with preconceived ideas, refusing to believe that such an imperfect preacher of the gospel could do any good? I ask you to reshape your opinion, to take a more gracious view of the old soldier of the cross, and to give him the honor he deserves. What if John Wesley did not use all the weapons of truth that our great captain has provided? What if he often said things that you and I feel we could not say? 
and left unsaid things that we feel should be said. Still, despite this, he was a bold fighter on Christ's side, a fearless warrior against sin, the world, and the devil, and he was a steadfast follower of the Lord Jesus Christ in a very dark day. He honored the Bible. He opposed sin. He made much of Christ's blood. He exalted holiness. He taught the absolute need of repentance, faith, and conversion. Certainly, these things should not be forgotten. Certainly, there is a deep lesson in those words of our Master. Scripture, Forbid him not, for there is no man who shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. Mark 9.39-40 Let us then thank God for what John Wesley was, and not continue dwelling on his deficiencies, only talking of what he was not. Whether we like it or not, John Wesley was a mighty instrument in God's hand for good. Next to George Whitefield, he was the first and foremost evangelist of England a hundred years ago.